Welcome to the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we train ourselves to think and perform better during times of crisis. ER doctors or not, we all face emergencies in our lives, and this podcast is all about getting better at acting during times of uncertainty and stress, and learning how to apply knowledge under pressure. So listen up, train hard, and enjoy, because you never know what's coming your way next. To learn more about building your emergency mind and to dig deeper into many of the concepts we get into in this podcast series, head over to our website at emergencymind.com. This episode is a slightly edited version of a talk I originally gave in Venice, California in May of 2019 as part of an event called Wisdom and Whiskey. It's a general introduction to the idea of the emergency mind, that is, the set of beliefs, tools, and actions we default to when we face an emergency. In this talk, we cover four things that emergency doctors do, or at least that we try to do, every time we face a crisis. These are things that anyone can learn and that you can start putting into practice in your life immediately. There are a few important clarifications and corrections that came to light while I was editing this talk for the podcast format. To see these and also to learn more about many of the ideas we talk about in this episode, head over to the show notes at emergencymind.com podcast. Okay, all that being said, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Emergency Mind podcast. Right on. So I, I'm really, really happy to be here talking with you guys about this. This is something I spend a lot of time thinking about, about how to build the way that you think during emergencies and how to, how to succeed at um, accomplishing a skill under really stressful situations. Um, something I love thinking about and I'm really happy to explore with you guys. Uh, so, okay, so I want to take you through what is um, only slightly crazier than an average day for me. And so this happened last week. Uh, so the nurse calls you and says, hey, we've got two patients incoming next two minutes. Bed eight is going to be a 45-year-old man whose heart just stopped. He's in active cardiac arrest. Paramedics are doing CPR. We don't know what happened. We don't know anything about his history. Um, and then simultaneously, bed nine is going to be a 50-year-old man that was hit by a truck. Um, he is bleeding profusely from a lot of different places, and his pulse is getting really weak. We think he's going to die any second. What do you want to do? These people are going to come in at exactly the same time. All right, you've got about a minute to decide this. All right, so as I'm talking about this, uh, I want you to think through sort of what that feels like. What does it feel like to even hear that? Like, does your pulse quicken a little bit? Are you a little bit nervous about being in that situation? How do you think you'd marshal your resources when, when that happened? Probably what this feels like to hear this is what it feels like for a lot of the junior doctors and a lot of the medical students the first time we run something like this, which is some version of this, which is that it feels paralyzing. It feels like you're full of fear, like you can't move, like you know what to do in theory, but you can't actually deploy it when it matters, right? And something like it just happens so fast. And maybe this feels like an emergency that you've been through. Maybe you haven't been running cardiac arrest, but something's been happening where you or your family have been in serious danger, and, and this might ring some chords in there. Now, if this is what it feels like at the start of education, somewhere towards the end of your education, if you start asking people what it feels like, if you ask ER doctors what these kind of things feel like, they tend to say things like this. You know what? It was hard, but I stepped up and got to work. I was calm and collected. Time seems like it really slows down when I'm handling these critical cases, and, and I was ready to go. It was incredibly difficult. It was super sad. But we got up there, and we did the work we were trained to do. And so the question is, how do you get to that, right? What happens? Because Nobody, at least not me, I wasn't born like that. And a lot of you guys out here actually have known me for a long time. And you've seen me before this was part of my normal personality. Um, and so how do you get to the point where you can run simultaneous cardiac arrests, one medical and one traumatic, and do it in the best way possible? Even if the person ultimately passes away, how do you bring the best you have to bear into that situation? Um, so this is me on the first day of medical school. 
Oh right? <laughs> Same goofy-ass smile, significantly more hair, and uh, a lot less good at what I do. But how do you get from this to, to this? And, and so part of that is knowledge, right? You learn the doses of drugs. You learn the way to deliver electric shocks, to put in breathing tubes. But more of it is, is you learn how to do these skills when it really matters, when people's lives are on the line, when it's not just a fake patient or somebody with an ankle sprain, but when it's somebody who, somebody's dad who got hit by a truck that you're trying to put back together. And so that idea of how you apply these tools under pressure is this thing that I've come to call the emergency mind, okay? And the emergency mind is the set of beliefs, tools, actions, what we default to when we're faced with an emergency, all right? And, and you can think of it the same way you'd think of a, a med kit, right, or an emergency kit. It's got a lot of stuff in it. You put it there on purpose. You put it there ahead of time. And when you need it in an emergency, you reach in and take it out. And all of us have emergency minds, right? If I put any of you guys in front of one of these patients in one of these emergencies, you would react instinctively with something. Maybe that something is fear. Maybe that something is purpose. Maybe you'd try the best you could to go forward with it. But you all already have some sort of a med kit packed. Probably it wasn't packed on purpose unless you've done training in this. Right? So you have an emergency mind. The problem is that unless you work on it, it probably sucks. Okay? And it's probably not able to really get what you need done. And so instead of being the lightning thunder response kit, you maybe have the Fisher-Price sing and learn kit. Right? <laughs> so this is actually a deeper metaphor than it looks like at first. So the Fisher-Price sing and learn kit is given to you by your parents. Right? It's given to you by teachers. They're like, look, do these things when something bad happens. Right? This is what most of us have unless we've challenged these beliefs in ourselves. And so, um, so, so the question is, if this is what most of us have before we do any training, how do we turn this into the lightning thunder tactical response kit, right? which is something that we could actually maybe want to use in an emergency if, if we ever needed to? Um, and so what I'm going to talk about is some of the skills that emergency physicians use in our training and some of the exact specific things we do to train ourselves to respond better during an emergency. Um, you might reasonably ask, hey, I'm not, I'm not an ER doctor, right? Why, why would I want to build something like this? Why do I need a lightning thunder tactical response kit? Which I just love the word of that again. Um, and the answer ironically comes from Mike Tyson, which is that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? And so there's two things to think of here. One is that, that ER doctor or not, all of us are going to hit emergencies in our life. Our families, ourselves, our friends, something's going to happen, and, and it's going to be bad, and we're going to need to be ready for it. And when it does happen, we want to be able to respond the best that we can. And that's probably not going to be those sentences we heard at the beginning, things like, I was so afraid, I couldn't move. I knew what to do, but I just couldn't get it done. Right? We want to behave more like the people that have been trained, even if that's not our daily bread and butter. The other thing is that if we think about our life on sort of a spectrum here, where maybe most of the time we're in this fun zone, there's like dancing and standing on podiums, and then on the other side of the spectrum, there's really terrible stuff like flaming skeletons, like really bad emergencies, most of the time we live somewhere in the middle, right? And if we train ourselves to handle the really terrible stuff, then we get better at all the stuff in the middle, all right? We're able to take those skills that we have and put them to play when things don't go the way we want them to go. And a lot of the time, things don't go the way we want them to go. So I think even if you're not planning on being an ER doctor, even if you're not planning on using a lightning thunder tactical response kit, like we still want to upgrade from the Fisher-Price sing-along kit and, and build ourselves something that's really useful and worthwhile. Um, so that's what we're going to get into. And so what I want to dig into today is four things that emergency doctors do to train themselves to respond in a crisis. All right? We accept reality. We act from within. We build uh, sang-foi, which is like the best word in existence. And then we try to play for the future.
Uh, okay, so let's dig in. So, so this, um, this is a picture from one of my trauma bays, and this is one of the only ones that wasn't taken by me. This is taken by one of my junior doctors, uh, and it was a person who came in and they'd been shot several times in the chest. And this is, um, I don't take pictures of patients because they're not really in a place where they can say yes or no to that. Um, but over the years, I have grown this weird affinity for blood spatter. So all of my pictures are of what happens after the person leaves the room. So this is what it looked like after this patient left the room and he was taken away to the operating room. Um, you can see a couple things here. Uh, obviously, there's an enormous pile of blood. Um, there's this, which is an open surgical kit. This is a, a kit that we used in this case to crack open the person's chest on both sides. Uh, and to try to stop the bleeding going on. This thing in the background is a rapid blood infuser, which has the ability to shoot a unit of blood into somebody in under a minute. Uh, part of the reason why there's so much blood on the floor here is that it misfired and shot an entire unit of blood onto the floor in a minute in this case. And so when you step up, and if you can imagine what happened about three minutes before this guy comes in, he's shot several times in the chest, he's nearly dying. You have a whole team of doctors running around you. You realize that in order to save this man, you have to cut open his chest break his ribs, and get at his heart, all right? Probably that feels something like a wave crashing on top of you, right? You see this thing coming at you. You know you have to do it, and it can just feel like this massive, massive wave of terror. And all of us, when we start, we feel this as fear. We feel this as really deep fear. And so one of the things we train on is how, what we do in the first one to two seconds of a case like this, which is that we realize we need to start moving, and we need to do something. Right? Inertia sets in if you do nothing, and the answer to that is to do something, do anything. And so we train that very first move. And the very first move we do is that we take our own pulse. We do it very quietly, we do it very subtly. If you're ever in an emergency, you'll probably never see anybody do it, but almost all of us do this. All right, so, and this is a good thing to practice, just real quick, right? So you're gonna, so feel your radial pulse. Um, you can do it like they do it here. The easiest way to do it is to trace your fingers down the curve of your thumb, two fingers, and then it's usually right there. Yeah, right? There it is. If you don't have a pulse, you are dead. <laughs> None of the rest of this applies to you. <laughs> but if you do, this is something you always have at the ready and something you can always use. And so if you were ever to see me, John, I don't think I did this the other day when you, when you were working with me in the ER, but, but if you ever see me in a really sick cases coming in, you'll see me standing at the foot of the bed like this because I want to feel my pulse. And it does two things. One is that when that wave comes at you and you're feeling a little bit afraid, you remember, hey, I can do something. I can actually take my pulse. Great, not the best medical skill in the universe, but it's something. And anything is better than nothing. Anything is better than standing paralyzed by fear. And so we train ourselves to act immediately to start taking our pulse. The other thing that it gives you, after you've done this for a while, is that you recognize that you never know how many heartbeats you have. Right? None of us ever know. And what I do know is that right now I have this heartbeat, and maybe this next one, to try to do what I can to help this person coming in. And so it grounds you into knowing that all you get is this heartbeat and this heartbeat and this heartbeat. You're really good at it. You can start slowing your heartbeat down and maybe like stretch that out just a little bit longer. But it all starts with this. It all starts with the first thing you do when something goes wrong, which is to pause and take your own pulse. Um, now, is that going to fix the wave coming at you? No, it's certainly not. You are still going to get hit by the wave. But you will have started forward momentum, and that's better than standing still when you get hit. And so when something comes in like this, we train to do that first thing, and it starts addressing the fear that we have. But actually, that starts before this. It starts before we get into the room. Because all of us train to see people that die and to work with death. 
And we train to address the fear of that. Because a lot of the fear that happens when you find yourself in a crisis is thinking about what is the absolute worst thing that could happen right now? What is literally the worst thing? And in a lot of cases, that worst thing is death. Right? Now, maybe that doesn't apply to some of the things we do that feel like an emergency. Right? We go into the coffee shop, and there's a long line, and we're going to be late for a meeting, and that just feels terrible, and we're revving up, and we're angry, and we're upset, and we're just sort of spiraling because we don't get our coffee. OK, that sucks. Right? I'm not going to lie. I really want my coffee in the morning, too, especially before I go into a shift like this. But nobody's going to die. Right? And so thinking about the worst thing that's going to happen is how we start to conquer some of that fear. And so, so here we go. All right? I'm sorry. You're all going to die. This is, this is the only true 100% guarantee certainty I can give you as a doctor is that everybody in this room is going to die, including me. Everybody that we know is going to die. The crazy part about it is that you never know when. So like, maybe you're going to die today. Man, I hope not. I totally hope not. You guys seem wonderful. I'd really like to not lose any of you. But maybe. We never know. And, and that idea of thinking through the fact that you're going to die and starting to make peace with that is how ER doctors start to work with the fear that comes into one of these things. And so um, we use for this uh, a technique that comes from Stoic philosophy. right? And so this is Latin, memento mori. Uh, and it translates either as a verb or a noun. But in either way, it means remember that you are mortal. Remember that you're going to die. Okay, as a verb, it's a command. Remember, you're going to die. And as a noun, it's a thing, uh, it's, it, it is a memento mori, a thing that helps you remember that you're going to die. All right, and the idea is that you keep this with you and you think about it, not once or twice, but on a regular basis. You think about the fact that death is coming and you try to make peace with that. And the more you're able to make peace with that, the more that fear goes away. You still get hit by the wave, you don't live forever, but you face it without any fear. This is one of my favorite quotes about this. I have no idea how to pronounce this dude's name. It's from a book of Japanese death poetry, which I like weirdly love. Um, long story behind that. But, oh, young folk, if you fear death, die now. Having died once, you won't die again. And the idea here is not really to just go ahead and die, right? But the idea is to, to throw your mind forward into what that's going to be like. What is it going to be like without you? What is death going to be like? And in doing so, to remove the fear of it so that Instead of trying to not get hit by a wave, you try to follow John Kabat-Zinn's advice and say you can't stop the wave, but you can learn to surf it. Right? You can bring whatever you have to bear when this giant wave of ridiculousness hits you. So I want to I throw one of these in for every one of these like, four things we talk about, which is just like, what can you do like, concretely to try to put some of this stuff into practice in your own life? And so I think for this one, for accepting reality, which is all about sort of addressing the fear you might feel at the start of a crisis, you can do these things. So you can learn to take your pulse. And I would just do that, right? Like when I was starting to learn this, I would just do this when I was in line for coffee, when I was waking up in the morning. When something bad happened of any sort of caliber, I would just start by taking my pulse. And over time, you, you find that it becomes more and more comforting. The other thing is to create or to use a memento mori. Use something, a reminder in your own life about this fact that you're going to die. If you're super weird like me, you can tattoo it on yourself so you can see it all the time. Can't recommend that for everybody. But it's worth thinking about, right? They're, they make these great coins from this place, Daily Stoic. I don't have anything to do with them, but they're awesome. And, uh, and anything like that, something where you can keep putting it in front of you and you can keep working on that fear. So that's accept reality. So we try to accept reality. We try to accept that fear, take that first step towards the case. The next thing we do is we train to act from within. This is the ground after a. If I remember correctly, this was a woman in her 70s. 
uh, who her family found her lying face down on the ground uh, in their home. The paramedics came in, and her heart had stopped, and they started doing CPR. Um, and they brought her in. And, and what you see here, in addition to my favorite blood spatter, is uh, a couple of things. So this pad right here is a defibrillator pad, the pad that shocks you, and it goes on the front. There's another one not pictured here that goes on your back. And then there's this thing right here, which is a, a new thing we've only had in the last year or two. And it sort of goes right in the center of the chest. And, and it's a little computer that measures how much force you're giving when you're doing chest compressions. And it yells at you if you're not giving enough force. Has anybody ever done CPR? Yeah? It's um, just on a dummy, yeah. It's, uh, it's humbling. When you do it right, you break their ribs. And you feel their ribs break underneath you, and it is hard. And you never, never forget what that feels like. And this machine yells at you if you don't do it hard enough. And so you watch people the first time they do it, and they're a little shy. And then it yells at you, and then it keeps going. And then eventually, you break their ribs. And so this woman broke so many ribs that um, it punctured her lung. And so um, we had to put a, a couple of tubes in to try to get that air out. And, uh, and she lived, actually. She lived through that, despite all of that. Um, and her family got to see her in the, in the hospital again which was a pretty wonderful outcome. What we train to ask ourselves in every situation, and we're going to get back to how this applies to chest compressions, but is to ask ourselves, what's in my control right now in this crisis, and what's outside of my control? And essentially, where do I have any power to act? And the, the, uh, the sort of idea here is to think about it like archery. right? So when we think about archery, we think about somebody, and they spend a lot of time working with a bow and arrow, and then they try to shoot a target. right? But where do they actually have control? They have control up until the moment they loose the arrow from the bow. And they have zero control after that. Right? So what can you control in an archery? You can control your breath, your muscles, the way you hold the bow, the way you knock the arrow. But once that arrow leaves your bow, it is entirely out of your control. And whether or not it actually hits the target is a totally different matter. Because there's all of reality that happens when the arrow leaves your bow before it hits the target. So when somebody comes in for cardiac arrest, when they're dying, I can't control if they live or die. I can't control the outcome, just like I can't control if the arrow actually hits the target. But like the archer, what I can do, what I can do is train myself to do everything I can that's within my control. I can do really good chest compressions. I can train myself to do the best chest compressions I possibly can, even if it means breaking ribs. I can train every single facet I can think of about how to deliver the right medicine, how to deliver the right electric shocks, when to do chest compressions but I cannot control whether they live or die. Right? And so in this case, the woman lived, and that's a great outcome. Maybe that had something to do with what I did. Maybe it didn't. If that woman had died, I'd be sitting here telling you the same story and say the same thing. Maybe that had something to do with what I did. Maybe it didn't. And so uh, again, this is a, another Stoic philosophy quote. Um, this is actually Marcus Aurelius on the side here. Uh, who's one of the great Stoic philosophers slash like former emperor of Rome. And if you want to start Stoic philosophy thinking anywhere, he's like, he's like the one to work with. But it says, you have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this, and you will find strength. Um, and it's not, just, uh, it's not just like you know amazing thinkers of philosophy. It's also people like Aubrey Marcus, 
who is in some sense a Stoic, quoting Aldous Huxley, who I have no idea if he is a Stoic philosopher or not. This comes from Instagram, not from the Stoic philosophers. Um, but it says, there's only one corner of the universe that you can be certain of improving, and that's your own self. And again, the idea here is that just like the archer, we really can concentrate only on our own self. And so this is the wrong way to focus this picture. And in reality, what should we be thinking about is instead of a picture that involves the archer, the arrow, and the target, just this, just pictures of the archers. Again, and this is a little blurry, sorry. And I don't know why they're outside the snow. I, no idea. <laughs> in any case. Also, like, why is that dude not wearing a shirt? <laughs> <laughs> totally unclear. So many questions, right? Next so many speech. questions. Totally. But like, you know, I can't control whether or not he wears a shirt. Hmm. So, but what we can do is focus internally on what we have any power to react on. And, and why is this important? Why, why is it important to, to tighten our cone of focus into the things where that we actually can make a difference on? And the answer is this, which is, which is a, the chemical formula for a sugar molecule. Okay? Uh, our brains are incredibly amazing machines that can accomplish all sorts of stuff, but they're still physical entities. And every decision we make, every nerve we fire, burns sugar molecules. It costs energy, and it costs energy in the form of sugar to make a decision. All right? So we can only make so many decisions. When you put this into practice in the setting of a crisis, where there's a lot of adrenaline, there's a lot of other things going on, there's a competition for the sugar molecules going on in your body, you only have the ability to make a couple of decisions really well. And you want to make sure that the decisions you make are the decisions that matter, that you don't waste your scarce sugar resources on something that you don't have any control over. Okay? There's actually amazing studies about this that look at um, the probability of judges granting parole to people on the t based on the time of day and sort of see that after and before lunch they make different decisions. Right? Like we run out of sugar, we all do. And so training to use sugar in a way that matters is actually a really important skill set. But it's sort of off topic for this. But the point of this is that you want to make sure you make the decisions about where you have actually a power to make a difference. Okay? So, Thinking about why that dude's not wearing a shirt, I don't know, man. doesn't seem like a great use of my sugar, right? <laughs> it's a waste of sugar. And, and I'll teach my residents just, just that. I'll, they'll ask a question, or they'll be frustrated about a process going wrong, my, my junior doctors, and I'll be like, you are wasting sugar with that question. We don't have enough to go around. We only have enough to do what matters. So you've got to start and really focus on where you have control. Can I ask a question? Please, yeah, of course. I mean, is it like an allotted amount of sugar you know, after you've eaten, or is it something you can re-up on? Like yeah, 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 great. That's actually really good. So, so uh, yes, in most cases, you can learn to balance that better by controlling the way that you take in sugar over the course of a day and take in calories okay. over the course of the day. Uh, yeah, so, so I've, I've changed the way I eat a lot over the years in part because of this, because the more that I've studied how much sugar plays into my ability to make decisions, and especially now that I'm supervising a team of people, uh, I've spent a lot more time thinking about how I can make this work better. And so I've like tweaked that a little bit. The idea still is that, is that we're not omnipotent. We can't do everything. We can't make all the decisions we'd even want to make. And if you think about yourself during a normal day, how much energy you flow into things that you have no control over versus the energy you spend on things that you do have any control over. That is so heightened and amplified in the course of an emergency because not only do you not have enough sugar to make all the decisions, you don't have enough time. You probably have the time and resources to make one or two good decisions, especially at the beginning. And those decisions that have, have echoes that carry on throughout the case that you'll do. So again, Marcus Aurelius, right? You have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this, and you'll find strength. And so how do you train this? Well, you train this by practicing in times when it doesn't matter, times when it's small. 
by that idea that I'm talking about, about how do you use this during the course of your day? How much time and energy do you spend on things over which you have no control? So this is a drill that actually came from one of my, one of my martial arts instructors. And he goes, okay, here's two lines. What can you do to make the top line the, the smaller of the two lines? Yeah, you can erase part of it. You can, you can squish it in a little bit. You can squint. You can cut it in half, right? What if I told you the bottom line was your line? What could you do? If the bottom line's your line, and your goal is to make the top line the smaller line? Make yourself bigger. Boom, right? Exactly. Focus yourself where you have any control. And so, so again, the idea is to think about this, to think about in yourself what time and energy you spend on things over which you have zero control whatsoever. And over the course of the day, get used to asking yourself, especially when you feel yourself amped up or in a situation where you don't feel comfortable, what about this can I actually control? And to focus your energy there. All right, that was an act from within. So we accept reality. We think about fear. We think about addressing fear and moving forward. We act from within. We try to do the best we can with the tools that we have. What about when things start going wrong? What about when we have setbacks, when bad things happen? All right, well, the third thing we train as ER doctors is to build sang-froid. So this is a scene uh, from one of my resuscitation bays after a respiratory arrest. So in this case, this person had really terrible asthma. They couldn't breathe. We tried giving them all sorts of inhalers. They tried taking inhalers at home. And it just got out of hand to the point where they couldn't breathe so much that we had to put a breathing tube in. Okay, so we had to put them to sleep and put a breathing tube in, a process that's called intubation. This is a skill set we use all the time as ER doctors. And it's one of our, one of our core sort of wheelhouse skills. Um, What's interesting, this is, this is the room after we successfully intubated her, put her on a ventilator, and got her uh, admitted to the medical ICU. And we were starting to open her lungs back up with some medical treatment. So this is the scene afterwards. Um, and uh, there's two things that are, uh, well, there's one thing that's interesting here. <laughs> uh, and that's actually this. So, so I showed you this the other day, right? So this is a, a backup thing that's called a bougie. All right, it's not the normal way that we think about bougie as being, you know, exactly, yeah. This is, in fact, uh, I don't know how it got that name. It's just called a bougie. It's a long, thin, flexible, rubbery stick that when you go to intubate somebody, uh, you take a look in their mouth and you try to put a breathing tube in. And if you can't see it, if it's too big or small or tight or the anatomy is just wrong, you can use this other thing, this backup tool, which is a thin, flexible stick, and blindly put it in. And if you do it right, you can actually feel the vibrations as it hits the ring on the trachea. And the thing that's interesting about this is we have it here, and it always lives here, so that if you're in the process of doing an intubation and something goes wrong, something doesn't go the way that you want it to, you know you can always reach blindly behind you to the left, pick up that bougie, and move to your backup tool. Okay, so this part is about how do you keep going when things don't work the first time, right? Which, as an emergency doctor, is something I face basically constantly. Um, nobody's in my ER because things are going well, right? Nobody just shows up for fun, except for me. I show up for fun. John showed up for fun. John, John showed up for fun. That's true. <laughs> and so the skill we train is, is this word, which is um, it's one of these words that doesn't have a direct English translation, but I think it's totally amazing. So sang fua is the combination of two words. So sang is blood, and fua is cold. So sang fua literally means cold-blooded but it specifically means the process of staying cool under pressure. Okay, so uh, Napoleon is said to, have, um, said to have said, I guess, about his troops that uh, panic must be drilled out and sang-froid instilled. 
Okay, so this is the concept of being cool under pressure. And more than anything else, this is the superpower of an ER doctor, right? We train that no matter what happens, no matter how crazy it is, that we respond with this. So this is Sangfua, right? This is, this is Little Red Riding Hood facing down a wolf being like, dude, bring it. <laughs> let's go. I don't care. It's raining. It's cold out. Whatever. Let's go. This is Sangfua. <laughs> this is not Sangfua, OK? Sitting quietly saying this is fine when the world is burning around you is stupid. <laughs> Get out of the house. It's on fire. Don't sit there and say this is fine. Okay, there's a really big important difference here. Sangfua is staying cool under pressure, but it's also acknowledging that what's going on sucks. All right? It's not pretending. It's not Pollyanna. It's not pretending that what's happening is meaningless and not hard. Instead, it's saying this is hard and we do it anyway. Um, however, things being on fire is sort of a great metaphor for this because that's what it feels like a lot of the times when things are going bad, right? We feel like we're literally on fire, we're burning. And so we know what to do if our clothes catch on fire, right? We stop, drop, and roll. But what about when we feel like we're on, one, we're on fire on the inside, when things aren't working, right? How do we hit the reset button? And so a lot of times in a crisis, whatever we hit at first doesn't work and we realize that we need to take a step back and start over. Um, and this could be an emergency, it could be something in our, in our business, it could be something in a relationship. We need to hit a reset button. So ER doctors train to build reset buttons into themselves. We know it's hard to hit this reset button when things are happening in the middle, so we train ourselves to have one at the ready. And the way we do it is this. We stop, we breathe, we do some sort of physical ritual, and then we get going again. Okay, and everyone has a different one of these. Okay, it all starts the same. You realize you're taken, you realize you're on tilt, right? You're on fire. You stop, you take one breath, and then you do something that you've trained yourself to have an impact on you, okay? Um, and then you get going again. And I'm a pretty simple person, right? Like I, like I like not reinventing the wheel. So I use the same ritual I use when I'm starting anything, which is that I take a deep breath, I pause, I feel one heartbeat, maybe two, and then I get back to work. And that's my physical reset for it. I have another one that I use sometimes, which is something that I used to do more when I was doing more Muay Thai kickboxing, which is the same thing I would do to start every round. You'd put your gloves on, you'd hit your hands twice, you get into the ring, you go to work. Everybody has their own little version of that. And the point is not that you do this. The point is that you develop something for yourself, some physical thing that has that reset button to it, something that you're able to anchor on. Some friends of mine, they like to pinch their fingers together in a little three-part thing. I have no idea why. That does absolutely nothing for me, and I think it looks really weird. But they love it, right? And you'll see them when something goes wrong, breathe, make this really awkward-looking hand gesture, and then like get back to work. And it's a reminder that you're still alive. And that's why I like taking my pulse, right? Because if I feel like I'm getting crushed by whatever's happening, I can at least be like, oh, good. I'm not dead. Cool. I'm going to keep going. Uh, there's two people that I think are really instrumental in thinking through this. Um, and there, there's a third one I didn't picture here, but, but does anybody know who these folks are? All right, so on your left is Pema Chodron, who's a Buddhist monk that uh, lives in Canada and runs Gampo Abbey and is an incredible teacher and thinker. Uh, and she talks a lot about the Buddhist perspective on addressing um, anger, frustration, and addressing a feeling of being hooked by something in reality. So the Buddhist word for this is shempa, and she does these amazing talks about it. I would totally recommend you, you look up Pema Chodron Shempa. 
Um, she has this whole like four-part algorithm that's similar to the ritual idea where you see it coming and you, you work on not getting hooked in the first place by it. Sort of the opposite of a Buddhist monk on this side is Jocko Wilnick, uh, who is a former Navy SEAL jiu-jitsu champion, um, writer of extreme ownership, uh, and like general all-around total badass. Uh, and he talks a lot about thinking coherently under pressure and how to lead a team under pressure and how to readdress. And he talks about it as stop, look around, breathe, make a call. It's all the same thing. No matter if you do it through the Buddhist system, through the Navy SEAL system, or through a lot of the ER system, no matter if you do it through any of these systems, the idea is the same. You take a brief pause, you do a reset activity, and you get back to work. This is possibly the only time these two people have ever been on a slide together. <laughs> I hope one of them somehow gets to see this someday, and I would just love that. Anyway, uh, they've both been amazing teachers for me as I learn more and more how to do this reset idea. Uh, so, so Pema Chodron in particular talks about how do you train this? How do you train at resetting yourself? And one of the answers she gives is that if you're training to put out fires, you don't start with a wildfire, right? You start with a really, 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 really tiny fire, like maybe a match. All right, so you go about your day-to-day -day life and you think about how can you hit this reset button when you're minorly annoyed? Not when like, things are actually really terrible, but when you're just like a little ticked off. Can you practice this skill of resetting yourself? All right, and that's how you build sort of the feeling of the reset action, whatever that physical thing is for you. Um, the quote that she uses about this is, if you're sitting in front of a fire and you can't put it out, maybe at least don't pour gasoline on it, right? Maybe your only victory that day is to not make the fire a bigger fire. Totally cool. That is a step in the right direction of learning how to reset yourself when things go wrong. Um, Jocko Willick takes the opposite or a different stance and says you should train jujitsu, right? And I actually, I actually really believe both these. I believe that if you want to get better in emergencies, you should train in jujitsu or something like jujitsu. Why is that? It's because it constantly puts you into minor emergencies. It constantly puts you into places where people are trying to choke you, which is, I think, what this guy is attempting to do here. Um, it puts you in positions where you lose. It puts you in positions where you get hurt minorly. And it makes you go through those and keep going. And that skill of hitting hardship over and over again, that skill of hitting friction, is what it takes to sort of build the larger set of stuff that helps you get ready for the big things. So don't pour gasoline on fires. Train jujitsu. Build sangfua. All right. Last, we try to play for the future. Um, and this is, out of all the things we do, this is dependably and consistently the hardest. This is the one I'm still training myself on out of all these, although I, I train all of this. But this is the one I'm always thinking about. Um, this is blood mixed with bone marrow. And this was a guy that got hit by a semi-truck. And his leg shattered so much that out of it spilled this mix of blood and bone marrow. And uh, this was shortly after he got whisked away to the operating room. And this was a really terrible outcome. And it's not just a terrible outcome for me as a, the doctor leading his case, right? But it's a terrible outcome, obviously, for the guy. It's a terrible outcome for his family. It's a terrible outcome for the surgeons. It's a terrible outcome, basically, for everybody. And Sometimes, no matter what we do, things don't work. Sometimes things just fail. We can have the best of intentions. We can do the best that we can, but things don't go well. 
Even if we do the first three steps, we have our emergency mind, we have our lightning thunder tactical response kit ready to go. Does anybody know what this is? Maybe Star Trek nerds? Yeah? What is it? It's like an unsolvable problem. Yeah. Totally. Right? So this is the, the starship Kobayashi Maru, which is a piece of Star Trek lore that they would use to, to train their officers in. And basically, they'd set you up in a scenario where you were leading a ship, and you'd have to rescue this other ship, the Kobayashi Maru, that was under, under attack. And the scenario was designed so that no matter what you did, 100% of the people involved died. And they died horribly, and you watched them die. And at first, when I read this, I was like, what is this? This is nonsense. What a terrible thing to put somebody through. Why would you purposely make somebody fail over and over again and seeing what happens? Because the question is really, what do you do about this? What do you do when you walk into a scenario, when you walk into a situation, a crisis, and things go terribly wrong, when no matter what you do, sometimes everybody dies and it's horrible? And I hope, I hope that this applies to my job and not to your jobs. I hope this is not how your average days go. But there's some equivalent to this, right? Sometimes you go into a situation and it's awful. And the question is, what do you do after that? How do you handle it? How do you get back up the next day and keep going? All right, so I'm going to tell you um, the story of the hardest thing I've ever done medically and the thing that sticks with me years and years later. So I was working in Haiti, and I was lucky enough to, to go work at the Mirbalay Hospital, which is the Partners in Health Hospital in Mirbalay. It's the premier teaching institution in the country, and it's the only place where they train ER doctors in the whole country. And I had a chance to work with them. Um, and so we're sitting in this wonderful hospital, the most advanced in the country, and, uh, and this dad runs in, and he's got a newborn baby in each arm wrapped in uh, a piece of towel. And they're both blue and they're not breathing. Their mom had just given birth to these twins maybe five minutes before. Dad, at home, dad took one look at them, realized they weren't breathing, that they were essentially dead, scooped them up and ran. Mom never even got to see them, never even got to hold them. And they run in and, and he gives me two babies and he goes, please. And so we go to work. We marshal everything we have. We pull every trick we can think of. Uh, I built systems, um, this thing called bubble CPAP that I had never seen created. I'd seen a drawing of once. We got that up and running. We built incubators out of trash bags and warm gloves. We did everything we could possibly think of. But it turns out that in the entire country of Haiti, there's no infant ventilator machine. There's no machine that's capable of delivering a breath small enough to breathe for an infant in the entire country. And so no matter what we did, we knew these two babies were going to die. If they'd been in the States, we could have saved them. I know how to do it. I'm trained. I have the tools. This is what I'm around for. This is the whole purpose of what I do to save people's children. But in Haiti, there's no tool in the whole country that works. And so these two kids died. And they died uh, without their mom ever seeing them. And they died without names. And it, it took me a couple years to even be able to tell this story out loud, telling this man that I could save his kids if he were American, but I couldn't because of where they were born. There's not a damn thing that's fair about that. That is just horrible. And that is the reality, which is that sometimes, no matter what you do, terrible, terrible things happen. And you have to keep going. 
because in the emergency room, there's another patient that's coming in. There's somebody else's child that maybe you can save. There's somebody else's family that you need to help. There's something else that comes later that day. There's something else that comes the next day. And no matter how bad the thing is, if you're still alive, if you still have heartbeats, you have to get up and you have to keep going. I hope that none of you guys ever hit anything like this in your entire life, that you never feel this. But you will hit something. You will hit some terrible, awful thing. And it's going to be up to you to get through that and to keep going. Why is this here? <laughs> oh, right, right, OK. I knew that I'm like, mm, squid attacking a ship. Awesome. Right, this is here because, again, there's some Stoic philosophy we can use to help teach us how to keep going and how to, how to do this when things are really bad. And this comes from Epictetus, who is not pictured here, but who is a, a Stoic philosopher equal to Marcus Aurelius in his scope. And he's talking about a shipwreck. And he goes, what are my options? I do the only thing I'm in a position to do. I drown, but I drown fearlessly because I know that what is born must also die. And the idea here is that when you face this terrible thing, this awful thing, you try to face it fearlessly. Because if you know that's all you get, it's the best you can do. Uh, this is my favorite part. OK. So you asked me what my favorite slide is. It's actually this one. So the real other thing you can do is maybe, maybe as you're drowning, maybe as you're facing this terrible, horrible thing, you can hit it in such a way that it teaches other people, it teaches somebody how to do something better for the future. Okay, so this is uh, Garrett Michael Matthias, who, who goes by the alias the Great Garrett Underpants. All right, he, uh, he died when he was five of leukemia uh, that he had basically his whole life. And he, before he died, wrote his own obituary. And please, if you do nothing else from anything I tell you, go Google the great Garrett Underpants and read this kid's obituary. The last thing this guy apparently ever actually said was, see you later, suckers, <laughs> which is just stunning in its profundity. Profundity? Whatever. In its depth. Uh, and please go read this, because it's incredibly heartwarming and inspirational. Um, and so what do we do with this? Because we know bad things are going to happen. And I think the answer, I think that my answer to the Kobayashi Maru when you face things that are impossible is to try to face them in such a way that you can train the future. Try to face them in such a way that you can learn from it, that you can make the people around you better, and that you can make somebody better. And so what does that mean? That means that you wake up tomorrow and do it again, whatever it is, that you hit that terrible thing and you write about it, and you talk about it, and you go to your friends and you say, hey, this happened. What can we learn from this? How do we get better? Because you take every single thing, no matter how horrible it is, and you use it to sharpen yourself. Because you know that as long as you're alive, something else is coming for you. And you've got to be there ready for it. And that's, that, more than anything else, is how you build the emergency mind. You take everything that comes, and you use it to make you slightly sharper. You train with each other, and you're in it together. You reach out to each other and support each other, and you all try to make each other slightly, slightly better every time. You try to play for the future no matter what comes in. I think, I think that's it. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emergency Mind Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, but more importantly, I hope you found something in there that you can use next time you find yourself in the middle of an emergency. To learn more about what we talked about in this episode and about building your emergency mind in general, head over to our website at emergencymind.com. Thank you and take care.